And I'm not a really good American because I like to form my own opinions. Huh? What? There's tons of examples of corporate greed, inequality, and disregard for the environment that make people wonder if markets are evil. And they are. Maybe Denise is right about America being the land of opportunity, and maybe it yields such a point about the machinery of capitalism being oiled with the blood of the workers. Where it's like, hey, wake up, liberals. You can't always do, uh, sometimes you gotta, uh, you know, uh, but that's a, that's that's actual quote from Carmel. In recognizing a communist, physical appearance counts for nothing. If he openly declares himself to be a communist, we take his word for it. Um, if I were to ever start a country with a communist government, wink, wink, with 12 years. Men are seduced by communists, women so much so that they deem communism nice. Communists murdered mostly the Nazis. Bottom-up horizontal connection, sharing at all levels is key. Describing this anarchy. Are you an anarchist? I mean, am I a member? An anarchist group, yes. Anarchists have a group? I believe so, sure. What kind of garbage is that? Oops, my anarchy symbol. Okay, welcome to the Three Left Show. I am your host, Daniel Platt, for this live edition, uh, at least uh, live in the studio as I'm recording. This program covers news, issues, and anything of interest from a radical and revolutionary left perspective, though I'm mostly focused on analysis for the last while. For the curious or the committed, though I use the own news, news posting as a tool. But anyway, for the curious or the committed, this show promotes a post-capitalist present and future via direct democracy and a commons economy. Discussing the means and ends of a multi-tendency left that is of itself and for itself. The meeting point of socialism, anarchism, and ecology. We bravely wave the flags of the three lefts. Um, but anyway, you need all three, I believe, to have good politics. Um, too much of one of those, and you're some kind of kook. Um, but uh, don't take my opinion for it. Uh, why is it also marginal? This is... I believe part five, don't hold me to it, part five of what I title the series, The Left Wing Strategy Tour, which I haven't done in a while, but over the last two years, maybe a year and a half, I've been visiting various strands of left wing strategy, how to do left wing politics, how, do the, how does the left, or how could the left win? What does it mean to win? These questions have been discussed at length through various means. Can't really list off every episode I've done around this so far, but this final, I believe, final version of this series will be based around revolutionary practice overall in the most trying to get things in the most practical way possible. What do you actually do? What kind of projects either have been effective or are effective today? You can't always look to the past because things have been different in the past, not only technologically, but even the way our attitudes have changed based on the postmodern zeitgeist. You know, one, one decade zeitgeist is not effective for another, though we've been in the same zeitgeist for quite a while now with little bits of change bit by bit, you know, and in, in each political cycle. Though I do not to subscribe to referring to things as like presidential eras, the Trump era. It's four years. How can you call four years an era? Anyway, that's another rant for another time. This isn't a ranting show. This is a analysis show. Um, trying to be the kind of soft, 
reasonable, sensible, let's talk things out communist. So there's no perfect polling, but poor polling is still preferable to piss poor. It beats out anecdotes. So I'm going straight to the source for polling, Gallup. I'm starting this show with kind of, uh, as I, I like to do for these big uh, idea episodes, where things stand or where what's the soil that we're growing our crops in. Uh, the headline is, 4 in 10 Americans embrace some form of socialism. This was published May 20th of 2019. As I explained in the last episode, I'm not looking at things day to day, year to year. I mean, the younger you are, the more it seems like the last four years has been a long time. Um, Not so much for me. I'm 33. But anyway, this was a file by Mohammed uh, Yunus. Story highlights. 43% of Americans say socialism would be a good thing for the country. 51% believe socialism would be a bad thing. Americans split on viewing economy as free market or government controlled. I think depending on... What you think would be good or bad is not only based on what you think is good or bad, but what do you think the current current state of things is? I think a lot of people are trained to believe that, uh, let's say, like you know, you believe um, that the problem is government control and that government is actually too big right now, and that's what causes all the problems. Others, like myself, would say there's too much free market, too much capitalism. It's capitalism run amok. Others try to use slippery language of sorts by saying, no, 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 it's not capitalism, it's corporate capitalism, or it's corrupted. It's not like, it could be better. It could be, it was better at one point. There was a point where I guess there was less exploitation, but that was when we had more unions, more social movements, more agitation and militancy in politics. So so I kind of roll my eyes also when it comes to any story about political polarization and how it's just so much worse than it used to be. Like, well, I guess, but that's because if you were in an extreme or a marginal political position, you were completely, like, well, marginalized. And I guess the idea is that there was this consensus of what, like, American politics was, and it wasn't partisan. It was all very well-gray, and it's the same. It was all very close together. Because when you're on top of the global hegemon, as a global hegemon, there's a good consensus of like what is working right now. And when things aren't working, opinions diverge. So I don't see it as a bad thing as much as, well, this is just the natural thing that's going to happen. You know, you get, you ask three Jews for an opinion, you get four. That's not really the right proverb to use. And that's more about how, you know, Jews are very opinionated like myself. Or that we're always thinking about things and then, um, you know, you ask a question, you get a good argument, and then you'll get a kind of fourth answer beyond just the personal answers from individuals. So anyway, let's go to the Gallup article. Americans today are more closely divided than they were earlier in the last century when asked whether some form of socialism would be a good or bad thing in the country. This is great about Gallup in that they've been around for a very, very long time and they've been polling for a long time. When asked whether the form of socialism would be good or bad, country, yes. Uh, So when 51% of U.S. adults say socialism would be a bad thing, 43% believe it would be good. Those results contrast with the 1942 Fortune survey that found a 40% describing socialism as bad, 25% as good, 
with 34% not having an opinion. The Roper Fortune survey is one of the oldest trend questions measuring attitudes on socialism in the U.S. Gallup's update of the question in an April 17th to 13th, the 30th survey finds Americans more likely to have an opinion on the matter now, as well as a smaller gap in the percentage calling socialism a bad or good thing. Previous Gallup research shows that Americans' definition, of course, of this word socialism has changed over the years, with nearly one in four now associating the concept with social equality, and 17% associating it with more classical definition of having some degree of government control for the means of production. Now, of course, that is also a wrong definition of socialism, because it's meant to be worker control. But if the government, then that would also mean it's worker controlled. But right now, what controls the government now? What would you say the U.S. government is a government of? Is it a government of the people? Well, most people would say no. It would be a part, it's a government of capitalism. It's a government of capitalists or corporate America. But really, that's a distinction without a difference. But it's a distinction trying to draw this um, you know, difference between corporate monopoly, monopolies and corporate capitalism, or a capitalists who are very large and capitalists who are very small. But if you ask, what's the real difference? It's just a matter of scale. It's not a matter of ethics or economic outlook between, you know, it's just a petty tyrant versus a very large tyrant. Regardless, they all have a voice in our government. Small business owners is what I refer to. So, you know, when, hey, they, they get something if they ask nicely. So a majority of Democrats have said they view socialism positively on Gallup polling since 2010, including 57% in the most recent measure in 2018. So this is kind of what maybe is referred to when it's like the Democrats are moving left. They view socialism as good. Now, of course, if you ask them what socialism means, they're referring to social, like welfare programs or something like that, which is just terrible. Terrible political theory, political science, what have you. Here's an overall update, uh, outlook on socialism around the world. So this uh, April survey, this is April 2019, also updates another historical question on socialism. Gallup first asked Americans in 1949 about their outlook on the spread of democracy over the next 50 years. At the time, 7 in 10 Americans, which was 72%, predicted that most countries in the world would have a democratic government. It's important to note that in much of the political rhetoric of the time, the term democracy and capitalism were more immediately intertwined than they are today, perhaps synonymous. And that's continuing to be the case in many Americans, my fellow countrymen. So let's see. So during the next 50 years, do you think most of the nations of the world will have a democratic government, a communist government, or a socialist government? Socialist, you know, being a social democratic one. So let's see, they fought 72% said more uh, democracies, meaning capitalist, Uh, 14% socialist, 9% said communist. Those would be the actually active communist party members. The current update on this question finds a marked increase in the percentage saying, oh, let's see, oh, back in 2019, 57% say democratic, 29% say socialist, and 6% communist. And 8% say no, have no opinion. In 49, it was, um, 1949, it was 5%. So the current update on this question finds a marked increase in the percentage saying that most countries during the next 50 years will have a socialist government. 
It is unclear whether this is due to the flourishing of democracies, particularly in Europe and Latin America, led by what is often described as social democrats, or whether a fundamental shift is taking place among some Americans in their views of socialism. So the problem with this polling is that does it ask what they believe these things are? So in the same April survey, Gallup asked Americans whether they would prefer mostly free market or government control over several economic and societal activities. As if these are the only two options that exist. They are not. But otherwise, Americans are mo most likely to prefer free market control in the areas of technology or innovation and the distribution of wealth. Majorities also want the free market to drive the economy overall, wages, higher ed, and education or in health care. I can't imagine why. Preference for the government to, but mostly I think if asked, they would say, oh, because government, if government did it, it, was just, it would just be worse. And you ask them why it would be worse or how it would be worse. Could, could an explanation ever be given? Probably not. Preference uh, for the government to serve as the primarily responsible actor only garners majority support for protecting online consumer privacy and the environment. Now, of course, you can't protect the environment without economic intervention. So let's look at it on the list. Let's see. Tech innovation. So I'm just going through those two columns, free market and government. So technological innovation, a net positive of 56%. Distribution of wealth, 40% more. Economy overall, 29%. Wages, 27%. I'm listing the percentage of people who you know, thought free market should, should handle these things. It's working out great. Higher ed, 15%. Healthcare, 9%. So it's kind of just following almost the status quo. You know, things like education and healthcare, at least for the people who are satisfied with it, for, for the most people who, the, mo the most people who are satisfied, is the government that are handling these things. But of course, a lot of technical innovation comes from the public sector. One could say all of it does. The innovation coming out of the private sector is cars that blow uh, that catch fire and in all sorts of uh, funny stories and things that I could point out of, of how actually inefficient they are um, in many ways. So let's see. Protecting consumer privacy, 17%. Environmental protection, negative 36%. Notably, more Americans favor free market than government control over health care and higher education, two areas in which Democratic politicians have made proposals to greatly expand government involvement. Yeah, right. But at least four in ten Americans appear sympathetic to policies that would increase the government's role in well, all of these areas. While there is an ample support for a market-driven approach to many of these issues cited above, Americans are divided on how they describe the current state of the U.S. economy. When asked whether they think the U.S. economy leans towards being free market or government-controlled, uh, it's free market control almost makes it seem like no one is in control. There's no class that has more power than others. It's like free market means everyone's on an even playing field. Equal opportunity, equal resources, equal access. That is not the case. Free market is only free for capitalists, people with the capital. Or different types of capital, social capital. It's different types of capital, of course. But that's, you know... Yeah. So 40% say it leans more towards government control, but fewer say it leans toward free market. There's 34%. One in four describe it as an equal mix, which is basically what, you know, cable news will 
kind of tell you. American split on description of U.S. economy, and it's got a bar graph about it. Bottom line, Americans' view on socialism is complex. While some recent data can easily lend an Americans' views when taking a longer, more historical look at the data. However, exactly what Americans mean by the term is nuanced and, of course, multifaceted. While half of Americans consider socialism as bad for the country, nearly two-thirds say the U.S. economy is more influenced by government than free market. Uh, or that it reflects an equal mix of the two. Additionally, while a majority of Democrats view socialism positively, that is not a major change in the eight years Gallup has tracked this metric. A major shift over this time has been been the reduced rate of Democrats who now view capitalism positively, which is now 47%. Uh, This data alone, or these data, so I guess data is plural, alone make it hard to generalize a simplistic conclusion about Americans' opinions, and willingness to entertain socialism. So there is a few clear takeaways. About 4 in 10 Americans are accepting of some form of socialism, at least when you use the word. Democrats currently have a more positive view of it, but of course that's when you're only talking about party membership, which is not like a majority of the country, country's people. So in addition, the April survey found that 47% of Americans say that they would vote for a socialist candidate for president. Well, that's funny considering the number of people that actually came out for Sanders. While that figure represents nearly half of the U.S. adult population, even higher percentages would say they would vote for an atheist, 58%, or Muslim, 60% presidential candidate. Though, of course, these are just abstract um, signifiers. Uh, When an actual person is put in front of them, all sorts of complaints or caveats start showing up. However, when they were asked what role they would like to see the government play in certain areas of society, Americans continue to endorse the free market. Shifting attitudes about socialism, capitalism, and the current... Ec- but that's the thing, they didn't use the word capitalism. Why are they using this article when they've been using free market? Seems like, oh, shifting attitudes about the free market. Why, why mention capitalism now, huh? So the current economic and political systems in America, as well as what alternatives many see as solutions, but this all just goes down to everyone's terrible education when it comes to political science and politics. So, or being a political agent, just viewing the government as a service provider kind of thing. So it's just like another big corporation, but it has taxing power. So that's that out of the way. Not exactly helpful, is it? But that's just kind of, I just wanted to illustrate the confusion that it does exist about these issues or about these terms and about that the best way to determine where people stand is to talk to them and to spread these ideas as I envision them, and I'm not alone, as a worker-controlled economy, as if it's a government, it is a government for workers or a government for as many people as possible and not the fewest people possible. Or it pretends to be, it's like, oh, we also, we're also for the middle class. And that only a small block of politicians would say, I'm for workers. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that, that, that's the current socialists that exist, the squad and so on. Speaking of which, so here there's the next, so the next piece in our journey is a piece from Jacobin, probably the last piece. I may read on this um, platform, but we'll, we'll see. By platform, I mean the show. But it is titled Building Socialism from Below. So it's a general op-ed policy document written by Ben Tarnoff. And it was written in 2018, so even earlier. Man, if I had this a while. But it was at the end of the year. 
Okay. So this is basically as the, you know, presidential presidential season was starting out. So it's almost like this is kind of the strategy going into the 2020 election season. And, uh, and of course, you know, what... No one, the, the masses are not moving in one way. Put it that way. Figuring out how to fight for state power and popular power at the same time is tough. The work of Nikos Papagos shows how socialists in the 21st century can do it. Although, I'm a little miffed at this because his conclusion isn't exactly that, like, defined either. So there will be some paragraphs that I may skip. Capitalism keeps creating socialists despite its best efforts. When people are dominated, they tend to resist. They build networks of mutual aid and find power in collective action. They begin to imagine a world organized along different lines, one where the wealth they make in common is held in common rather than hoarded by a few. This is why you can't kill socialism, because it's not just a set of ideas about how to interpret and change the world, but a tendency produced by the very system that it seeks to replace. When Marx and Engels called communism a specter, they captured this undead quality. Socialism is the ghost in the machine, haunting capital wherever its circuits appear. If socialism can't be killed, however, it can be suppressed. And few countries had suppressed it more successfully than the U.S. at the turn of the 21st century. American socialism, never as strong as its counterparts in other countries, had become nearly invisible. By the end of the 90s, its traditional source of strength, labor, and black liberation, to name the two most important, had been eroded by economic restructuring and state repression. The collapse of communist regimes abroad inspired a tone of capitalist triumphalism at home. U.S. politics, finally saved from the long shadow of the October of 1917, became a contest between different flavors of neoliberalism. You know, the type that's woke and not woke. Now hailed as the highest and final form of human civilization, U.S. workers were in no shape to put up a fight. Because of deindustrialization, mass jailing, the attack on the welfare state, and war on unionization had left them disorganized and disempowered. But after um, this victory in 2008, you know, the final victory of capital can do whatever it wants, and then it basically, well, overleveraged itself. And opened things up in the 08 financial crisis, which opens a large crack in the neoliberal consensus and offers a painful lesson in capitalism's failures. So it brought forward a decade of various movements, including Occupy BLM and the Sanders campaign. More importantly, there's the actions against ICE and so on. It's clear that we've entered a moment of rising militancy and mobilization, though it's not quite crested, I hope. A new U.S. left, more radical, more combative, is taking shape, although I don't really see it doing that right now at this moment. And that's kind of more of um, when Republicans are in office, people are more energized, and then Democrats kind of put a certain left to sleep. But then there's a left like me that never sleeps. We're never done. Because we're not satisfied just because Biden's in the White House. It's really dumb. Or immature. This left is not monolithic, of course. It has distinct currents, and the relationship among them is complex. Poll after poll confirms the term is growing among a popular millennials. Socialist orgs, like the DSA, though I don't like calling them that, uh, though they certainly have a share of actual socialists in them, I would not call it the organization as a whole socialist. I guess that's why I shouldn't call the green socialist because it's not all completely socialist. But I don't know. Our platform is what I would call a socialist platform. So I think that's the difference. But it's also part of its 
practice too. But anyway, let's move forward. I do have some notes to follow. So it kind of points out that the left is still not really a base. It's, it's more in a subculture, which is kind of what it's been for, uh, yeah, for the first time in decades. Socialism is more than a subculture. The withering of, a political, of the political center, exemplified by Trump's election, has amplified formerly marginal voices at a time when the ruling classes were seemingly unwilling or unable to address the long crisis in working life, the legacy not only from the Great Recession, but the slowdown in growth of productivity since the 70s, 1970s socialism is finally finding an audience but an audience is still not people moving let's put things in perspective socialism is now more in a subculture but it still lacks a mass base as the largest socialist org i mean keeps harping on dsa because this is jacobin that's what you got to do dsa has grown rapidly in the past two years to roughly five fifty thousand members yet it remains orders of magnitude smaller than right-wing groups like americans for prosperity and the nra which boasts millions of members, although how many of those members actually pay dues, but maybe they do. And if the collapse of the political center has created space for socialism, it has also created space for capitalism's other ghost, fascism. In fact, far right has been also a big beneficiary. He uh, focuses then on what is called left-wing Eurocommunism. He speaks of theories from a Louis Althusser said that we are always in exceptional situations. See, when it comes to our own situation, the insights of a Nikos Palilatas are especially useful. This is a Greek sociologist who taught in France in 68 until his suicide in 79. Uh, this Greek philosopher wrote on class fascism in the state, and his work of his that bears most directly on the question of U.S. socialist strategy today is called Towards a Democratic Socialism. So the context of his essay was a rise of Eurocommunism, which refers to a tendency in communist parties in Western Europe, namely the ones in Italy, Spain, and France, that chose to distance themselves from the Soviet Union, probably after, you know, after the revolts, the, the tanks rolled into Poland and, and uh, Prague. And this made it, you know, you had to have a choice. It's like, okay, we're not condoning this. And obviously, at this particular point, the Soviet Union is not really advancing socialism anymore. It's, it's ideologically stagnant now. So we're going to move forward, and that means working as a parliamentary party. Let's see. Express a stronger loyalty to representative democracy and form relationships with new social movements like feminism, ecology, and gay liberation. Eurocommunism might seem like a remote artifact of socialist history, but the debates it inspired continue to feel very contemporary. What's the role of representative democracy? What should socialists think about the state? Where do social movements fit in? So he supported this, uh, this philosopher supported the eco-communist turn, Eurocommunist it's called, uh, but staked out a position on its left, a cr critic of Soviet authoritarianism. He wanted socialists to embrace representative institutions and the political liberties they embody, but he didn't want them to stop there. He insisted on the need for a more radical model while avoiding the nightmare of Stalin also sidestepped the pitfalls of social democracy, which is where a lot of those parties went. Both processes have been per pursued together, he argued, since either pursued in isolation would cause the socialist project, project to collapse, meaning focus on getting state power, but also building popular power, which would, you know, it's a base. Because this is what happened to all these parties. The latter would involve cultivating Let's say the former would involve transforming the state by shifting the relationship of class forces within it 
not simply occupying its representative dis institutions. But what happened was a lot of these parties gained some state power, but then they stopped building popular power. Working solely within representative democracy in its existing form left socialists powerless to push the kind of transformations that are kind of needed to break the power of capitalism or to do anything differently. The fate of many social democratic parties. On the other hand, relying exclusively on direct democracy and eliminating representative democracy as revolutionaries like Lenin did in the aftermath of October Revolution presented serious dangers. It opened the door to a top-down model bureaucracy. Uh, this is what Rosa Luxemburg warned about in 1918. Representative democracy underpins pluralism and the freedoms that are required for pluralism to function. Representative institutions offer a framework for multiple parties present. So, you know, basically makes the, makes the uh, argument for parliamentaryism and not direct democracy, so enemy of anarchists, I guess. But this is what, um, let's see, you know, direct democracy would deteriorate into despotism. This is what happened in Russia. A single party came to dominate the Soviets and eventually substituted itself for, well, them. Because the Soviets were basically big unions. And each of these unions was represented and they had a very direct democratic form of governance. Um, but then the Bolsheviks kind of took over. And they were able to do that because, I guess, uh, the structures were not strong enough and, this, and these the Soviets couldn't kind of be a counterpower. But it was also a matter of acquiescing in a little bit. If sole reliance on representative democracy leads to one dead end in the form of a social democratization, then sole reliance on direct democracy leads to another dead end in the form of bureaucratic dictatorship. You know, tyranny of structurallessness is a, what it's sometimes called, which also uh, occurred in Occupy. These were very different outcomes, but they share a common theme. Both are marked by statism and a profound distrust of initiatives. Both end up alleviating or elevating an elite that claim to speak for the masses, whether it's social, Democrat, the social democratic politicians, let's say AOC, or Soviet apparatchiks, while actually depriving the masses of any meaningful opportunity for self-rule. Thus, the importance of developing state power and popular power at the same time in combination would inhibit one of the other's worst tendencies. Pretty interestingly hard balancing act. So, balance power of the state, a bias towards the DSA I wrote down. Um, eventually, he kind of goes through various uh, paragraphs referring to um, DSA-backed candidates, kind of the theory behind... Uh, Mr. Peters in Chicago that I kind of um, followed up with the last time I did this topic, sort of, I think, where he's, um, he, he's the guy who is now in Obama's former uh, Illinois state Senate seat. And he basically works with movements on the outside to kind of get things, certain things done. The state is less a fortress than a field of struggle. Still, it is a field that remains heavily tilted in capital's favor. The U.S. state is a stark case. The founders engineered a form of government that would preserve the rule of property owners like themselves and suppress popular energies that would bubble up from below. From the Senate to the Supreme Court to the logic of federalism itself, it's hard to think of another advanced democracy that's more antagonistic to the basic principle of a popular sovereignty. And the rightward march of U.S. politics over the past de several decades has only made things worse. Voter suppression, the growth of money in politics, he also doesn't add, but I will add party suppression, 
an increasingly reactionary judiciary are just a few of the mechanisms employed for making the country's representative institutions less so. No wonder, then, political scientists Martin Gleans and Benjamin I. Page, after examining decades of data, concluded that majorities of American public actually have little influence over the politics of our government. That privilege is held by the wealthy, a feature, not a bug, of the U.S. state, in particular, capitalist states in general. As a result, the goal for socialists can't just be to infiltrate or influence, but to transform the state. Reforms that improve the lives of working people can and should be won within the confines of the current system, but by sharpening the conflicts and contradictions that crisscross the state, socialists can carve out more space for more radical reforms. Sooner or later, though, the class nature of the state asserts itself. The state is territory we're fighting over, but it is always enemy territory. This is an important point for socialists to make as they participate in struggles being waged by a new U.S. left. Beyond the many specific demands, the deeper demand at the heart of these struggles is the dignity and self-determination for a world where everyone has the resources they need to lead a non-miserable life and the power to participate in the decisions that affect them. Capitalist state cannot possibly create this, since the mode of production that exists to preserve is premised on the domination of others. So what kind of state could? Well, we can start by abolishing the Senate. Capitalist state divides power into two spheres, the political and the economic. Capitalist states have conceded a degree of democracy in the political sphere, but only on the condition that the, you know, we get the vote, uh, on the condition that the economic sphere continues to be a dictatorship of capital. To be truly representative, a socialist state would have to dismantle this. It would have to both deepen and extend its powers of representation and treat democracy as the supreme organizing principle for all democracy. Now, I want to put aside here that this is all about the, like, the goal of one socialist have a state or something, not, you know, taking it or how, do, how does one be political now? Well, this is where the next section here. He goes through a hodgepodge of ideas. Um, this is what I wrote. But he talks of a general socialism from below, which to me is pretty vague um, because lots of anarchists say that they're doing socialism from below. But it's basically that the state has an enabling role in the pro- in a process. That's because states tend to concentrate power. The kind of power that grows in the soil of that wider society is a popular power. So he you know, returns to building popular power, and that's kind of what's kind of needed to do any of the other stuff. Popular power is a perpetual feature of working class life. As long as capitalism has existed, people it has exploited have tried to claw back control over their lives. They have formed councils and committees, unions, cooperatives. They have organized as workers and tenants. These are kind of all the stories that kind of pop up now, where it's like, oh, cool things on the left are happening. Well, this is really just struggling. But it's not popular power, unless all of these things form a coalition. Then it's a, then it could be a force. Well, the, there are strategies. Well, the, these strategies are more about surviving capitalism. They also contain seeds for going beyond it. By carving out the islands of cooperation and solidarity, the working class makes the silhouette of a different system visible. Hall once described the points of recognition that develop between socialist ideas and working class life. He believed that socialist validity and much of its content derives from the practice of communities. We are making the socialism of tomorrow today. So he speaks of autonomous layer, uh, meaning that masses need to be autonomous from state power actors. 
But it is the struggle for popular power that is constant. It escalates in certain moments. We are in one of those moments now with new fronts and new flashpoints quickly taking place. Take example of the recent teacher strikes. This is back in 2018. That began in West Virginia, where militants built a mass movement through a commitment to rank-and-file democracy, links to local communities, an industrial model of organizing that engaged not just teachers, but all school workers, from the drivers to the cooks. The strikers defended the right to a public education against efforts by state governments to privatize it. As a result, they also belong to a broader movement for decommodification, for taking certain goods and services off the market to ensure that people can actually access them, or everyone can access them. The other is the campaign for Medicaid for all, Medicare, Medicare for All, currently a vanguard of this movement, though it seems kind of way late today. So it built, but it built the groundwork laid by Sanders to become a major political force. I wouldn't call it that. These initiatives clearly reflect an effort to influence the state by altering the balance of class forces within it. Let's see. But the point is that popular power is autonomous of the state, a layer that cultivates the capacity for you know self-government. Because people don't actually like interacting with the government. Um, everyone hates everything and everyone, so you're kind of left doing things yourself. And the best you can do is work with a small group of people you trust, which you know can be pretty difficult depending on your mental situation. So about how the U.S. left currently is still a laboratory, but also an engine. The U.S. left is making itself felt in both streets and state houses. It is acting at the level of electoral politics and the level of strike, riot, and occupation. Not so much occupation, but it is using candidates, campaigns, conventional politics, of course. So it kind of wraps things up, but I wanted to get to his last point, which was... Socialism has more questions than answers because its questions can only be answered by everyone together. We are living at a time when those questions are finally being asked again. The task for socialists is to create the spaces where those answers can be found. And that's what I think I'm doing here, folks. Although I'm only doing it alone at the moment. My show is one person, but I will be doing it. I'll be expanding that over time, certainly online. I will never. St- I do not like streaming alone. I will always want to stream with others, so that I am trying to find answers with others. And yeah, although that culture is really mixed as far as how toxic or not toxic it is, it's a mixed bag. But it's certainly like that's what everyone's kind of about right now. Looking, trying to find answers together in some form because we have so many questions and not any good answers. Though you find the answers by doing things. You have to experiment in the real world too, not just debate. Get to that by the end if I get there. But as a counterpoint to what everything I just read in Jacobin, I want to read a piece from a site called Socialist Revolution, written by Antonio Bomber, also in 2018. Again, these articles I saved them a long time ago, and it's taken this long to read them uh, because uh, if you notice, like this is a series left-wing strategy tour. I basically had dozens of articles and i basically kind of sorted them based on what they what they fit around or do they fit together do they work off each other and so this is the last set (laughs) so finally through the list so this is called the case for revolutionary optimism so euro communism that was this i described before social democratic politics dsa politics being dementrius working in the state thinking that DSA victories are so, like left-wing victories, 
I don't really see it that way. I mean, it's positive. I guess I can't really let what you know, poo-poo all of it. But it's not what I want. But you know, we're all very picky, aren't we? But so much of what I see, you know, and find out there, along with those that are trying to work hard, there's also a lot of pessimism. So much pessimism. So I guess this will this will go into it a bit. So it's called the case for revolutionary optimism that things can, in fact, change. A few years ago, being a revolutionary Marxist meant getting accustomed to seeing incredulous expressions on the faces of people who couldn't conceive of a revolution. Asking someone to imagine the working class coming to power and bringing the productive potential of society under a more democratic control was like asking them to envision an imminent leap in human evolution, a total abstraction. But as any act of Marcus in 2018 can attest, there has been a definite shift in the daily conversations. The need to overthrow capitalism no longer seems so abstract. The now popular references to late capitalism imply a growing awareness that, if anything, the system should have been overthrown long ago. Now the question is one of concrete strategy. How can a revolutionary mass movement succeed in overthrowing it? So it's no longer, you know, 20 years ago, the questions were like, how do we get more Democrats elected? Or what were the questions on the left? I mean, I could look up old programs from left forum and you could probably see how the program of what people were talking about in left forum or other, other conferences and things have changed immensely. Millions of Americans or American workers and youth are ready to talk about this thing called socialist revolution. In fact, and this is relying on similar those similar polls I've referenced, 51% of millennials, that's 42 million members of the largest generation of U.S. history, would rather live under socialism than communism, according to a YouGov poll from October. Combined with record levels of discontent with both major parties, 71% of millennials believe a major third party is needed. But of course, if you ask them to join one, they'll all say, well, we need fundamental reforms first. Which, yeah. But that's like me saying, hey, it's raining out. Um, do you, do you want to walk over? And someone saying, yeah, but we need an umbrella. I'm not going outside unless I get an umbrella. I'm like, okay, then get an umbrella. Why, why go, go out and buy an umbrella? Don't just sit on your butt <laughs> telling me it's raining and there's nothing we can do because it's raining. And like, we, okay, let's get some umbrellas. That's the step. Okay, enough of my forced uh, metaphors. Combine a record levels of, so yeah, and again, relying on that people, all these millennials really have different views of what socialism is. Some of them, it just means Medicare for all or social safety net, maybe it'll be a you know, universal basic income, and that's socialism. Of course it isn't, but whatever. But it just means social policy, like policy that is social, because basically for most of our lives, all policy has been made in an antisocial direction. And we've been pressed to have antisocial views. Forget everyone else. You got you to gotta think about yourself. You got to think about yourself. No... No duty to self-sacrifice for others. And when someone does come along, they're a saint, they're patronized, they get awards. And it's like, okay, why can't everyone be like this? But our system means, like, we no, everyone can't be. It has to be these few hand-picked individuals that can, like, that maybe had things uh, set out for them or, or some situation where they were able to actually self-sacrifice. 
But if you like self-sacrifice yourself, you're, you know, you're treated like an idiot. So you have this democratic outline of a future mass socialist party once a viable alternative to the left of the Democrats emerges and coalesces. And that's usually what's said. You know, the Greens are not viable. All these other organizations that currently exist aren't viable. And you ask them, well, what would make them viable? And then there's a whole checklist of things that could be done or need to be done. And it's basically like, okay, well, sometimes you're describing a fantasy or you're describing something that is, okay, let's get started. <laughs> but a lot of people are kind of waiting for it to be done already. Like they're waiting for a piece of media. It's like, oh, I've always wanted this kind of Spider-Man movie. And it's like, you had no part to play in making sure a certain type of Spider-Man movie was made, but hey, eventually, after 12 years, you know, this kind of Spider-Man movie was made. And, oh, wow, it, it happened. The, part, the market provided. So anyway, with this turn in the tide, you expect a corresponding wave of revolutionary optimism from the voices of the socialist left, who should be thrilled to be swimming with the stream of mass consciousness for the first time in decades very least its interest. And yet, to flip through the pages of an increasingly prominent left publications like Jacobin, you'd think the question of class struggle and socialist revolution are still dead and buried as they seemed two de decades ago. The demoralized sentiment of the left was summed up in an advice provided in, a, well, a different Jacobin article, not the one I just wrote, uh, read, but uh, Eric Wright's article, How to Be an Anti-Capitalist Today. He wrote in that, Give up the fantasy of smashing capitalism. Capitalism is not smashable. At least, if you really want to construct an emancipatory future, in one way or another, you have to deal with capitalist structures and institutions. Taming and eroding capitalism is the only viable option. So the real problem, back to the author, is this pessimistic insistence on lowering the horizons of any emerging socialist movement. It's not simply the disappointment that comes from hearing the liberal arguments from your high school government textbooks repeated in a popular socialist magazine. It's the fact that this defeatist outlook is shared by the labor leaders who would otherwise be in a position to mobilize this. For the budding socialists left in the U.S., this kind of timidity can only prolong the infant stage of the movement's development. And I believe it's still in that stage um, because there's a timidity. None of these streamers or thought leaders online have joined any org, and they don't promote any particular org. Because if they did, they'd be taking a side, and they lose like support, they lose um, subscribers and, and views and stuff. Because you have to be as many things to have many people. You have to be to be popular. You basically have to. Uh, what, what's the thing that said about being popular? That you're 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 going to a lowest common denominator, and the lowest denominator for the socialist is an infant. Infant socialists, baby leftists, that haven't figured out if they want to join something or not, or if they want to join it, what kind of thing, is it something that exists already? Yeah. Where did I leave off? A serious campaign in the labor movement for the creation of a mass socialist party would get an enthusiastic echo among millions. Instead, calls to be strategic and realistic, meaning give up on outlandish attempts to break from the Democratic Party, threaten to corral the energy of socialists back into the well-worn and limited channels of local activism and perpetual base building. So that's interesting. So that's, you know, that's, this is a retort to the uh, last article. So what is he, what is he talking about as being like, well, what, what would a real socialist party or movement be doing? But that's, that's kind of why, that's my critique of the first article I read, Socialism from Below, where he's just arguing that, like, we need to stay in the infant stage to figure out, like, 
what are the answers to our many questions? We have to be like infants, asking why of everything and being, you know, being careful. Don't put things in our mouth. So this is not the first time Marxism has engaged in battle against a chorus of pessimism. Behind the hard-nosed realism of the labor leaders is a crystallized core of disappointment flowing from the many defeats the workers have suffered in the history of, well, of history. Of class struggle, though, in particular. Inherited from a long line of reformists who came to the brink of revolution only to be overwhelmed by what this writer calls the weight of history, the responsibility of being in charge. Or particularly having ideas about, like, well, that would be dominating and that would be oppressive and I'd have to oppress somebody and I can't do that. So it's like there's a fear of actually having real power. Or the desire to distribute power as much as possible, but without any good education means that tyranny results. And that's kind of the Leninist way that, like, well, the country wasn't even literate, literate, you know. But in this case, in America, it's like it's, everyone's literate, but everyone isn't financially or socially or, or politically literate. So according to this view, any talk of the working class coming to power and expropriating the Fortune 500 is a pipe dream that the left must leave behind if it's going to get on with its job of actually making real change happen, which must necessarily take place within capitalism. Nothing brings out the divide between these two sides, reformists and revolution, like the, uh, like the Russian Revolution itself. This was a theme of a recent Jacobin issue titled The First Red Century, which opens with an editorial contemplating the relevance of the 100th anniversary. Now a century later, the question is less whether or any of us will live to see socialist triumph than if such dreams belong entirely to the past. An article in the same issue titled The New Communists exhorts the youthful left to stop worrying about old answers to old questions. No matter how many freshmen come to your September screening of October, today the probability of such a revolution is infinitesimally small. The world's working classes have moved on, and yet the far left today embraces the Soviet obsession like a vampire hunter wields garlic. Despite what liberals might say, it's not an inability to atone for communism's body count which haunts the socialists left today. It's our inability to move on from these dreams of an apocalyptic rupture, fantasies of new, uninfatable worlds that will somehow spring up unencumbered by the shell of the old one. The author also objects to the fact that revolutions share fundamental dynamics. Quote, In almost every instance of mass revolt, they find the Bolsheviks October, Germany in 1918, France in 68, Egypt in 2011, and everything in between. Unquote. The denial that these inspiring mass movements were in fact revolutions amounts to a renunciation of any kind of worker revolt altogether, i.e. stop imagining that the working class can overthrow the system. So what do Marxists mean by revolution? So instead of providing a dictionary definition, let's examine the recent events in Greece, meaning recent meaning last 10 years. And let our readers decide whether these events deserve the label of revolution. The election of Syriza, a coalition of left-wing parties, on January 25th of 2015, marked the rise of the first left government in Europe led by a mass party from a communist tradition since the 08 crisis. Years of ruthless austerity imposed by the Troika, meaning um, three entities, the IMF, International Monetary Fund, the European Central Bank, and the European Commission, had reduced Greece to a condition comparable only to the aftermath of a cruel civil war, with severe economic dislocation, dramatic cuts in wages and living standards. 
the masses were desperate for a way out. For years, there had been a near-constant mobilization by the Greek masses, including some 35 general strikes, countless local struggles, and months-long occupations of city squares. In this context, the prime minister of the Syriza government, Alexis Tsipras, came to power with 80% support on a promise to end austerity and defy the powers of the European finance capital. I mean, the, the powers of big money. For six months, the Syriza government enjoyed overwhelming popular support from the Greek masses who rallied around the slogan, not one step back. The revolutionary enthusiasm of the masses culminated in the July 5th referendum, when 61% of the Greek population voted to reject the extraordinary bailout terms proposed by the, the Troika. At that moment, Spiritus and the Spiritus leadership found themselves faced with the limits of a capitalist system. To follow through with the mandate of defiance from the working class and put an end to this onslaught of austerity would have meant a decisive break with the demands of international finance. It would have provoked vicious retaliation from the Troika and Greek Greek uh, small business owners, bourgeoisie, you know, small capitalists, uh, which could only have been met with socialist measures by, you know, Greek bourgeoisie, referring to uh, the owners of corp media corporations and, and other such large businesses. And you could only, but could, they could, you could only meet this with socialist measures, like real ones. Expropriation of banks to prevent capital flight and mobilizing the working class to occupy and bring key industries under state, meaning worker control. The mass assemblies, which gathered in every major square and workplace throughout Greece, could have elected reps to a national network of committees for worker control to begin administrating a coordinated plan of production, bringing the millions of unemployed into the workforce to ramp up production and counteract the scarcity that existed. The wealth stashed in the bank accounts of the expropriated Greek ruling class would have allowed the state to ensure the supply of raw materials and fuel meaning this is both a popular power thing of people in the streets and the state actually doing things with state power, which in most eyes are bad and authoritarian. But I do not see it that way. This could fuel new economic relations. An appeal by the new Greek worker state, I mean, you know, the Spiritsa government, which was a coalition of left-wing parties of various strands, but they, if they came together on this, uh, they could appeal for international solidarity, which was already being expressed by demonstrations of thousands in every corner of Europe. This would have sparked a, more, a large wave through the continent, beginning with southern European countries where workers faced the same conditions, period. The task would have been that of holding out until the workers of the rest of Europe, who were enthusiastically watching every move of Greece, could join them in this path. But unfortunately, but let's just say you just do it in one country. Start there. But unfortunately, Alexis Tsipras never had a strategy beyond trying to force the European bankers back to the negotiating table. When the Troika called his bluff, he caved. On July 13th, the historic window of opportunity slammed shut when Tsipras signed the Troika's memorandum, thus betraying the popular mandate that they had and the, and the aspirations of many others and all workers of Europe including myself. I was disappointed in that outcome. And he threw, throwing the ranks of Sarica into confusion and demoralization. So you had a leadership 
that did the opposite of what anyone was expecting. Because the whole point of them being elected was to not cave. And then the prime minister caves. So their popularity dropped like a stone. Now you got, you know, well, the fascist party is in trouble, but now it's now it's a center, it's a center centrist coalition again. So during those decisive days, an organized force of just a couple thousand Marxists with a clear revolutionary program, which is the kind of the paragraph he was describing, could have shown the way out of the crisis, like someone pouring the way out of a burning building. You know, nationalization and, and worker control and, and co-op laws. Just 24 weeks separates Reese's electoral victory from its July portrayal. The same amount of time in which the Bolsheviks had required in 1917 to grow from some 8,000 to a quarter million members. You know, the time between the first Russian Revolution that ousted the Tsar, the Tsar and then the Bolshevik one, which ousted the liberal government. That replaced it. As events pushed wider layers of the class to draw revolutionary conclusions, if a program from socialist revolution has still appeared too abstract or far-fetched to the average Greek worker in January of 2015, there can be no doubt that six months later it would have received a massive echo. Was the entry of the masses onto the stage of history in Greece a revolutionary movement or not? Was it the masses' fault their aspirations were not carried to a conclusion for the failings of their reformist leaders? So the main critique here is that Spirito was not radical enough. The degree to which reformists, and, re and by the way, and this is kind of the thing with Spirita, as soon as Spiritus caved, half of the parties that made up Spirita basically left. They basically pulled out of the government, meaning they didn't have a majority anymore, they didn't have a government anymore, opening the door for Golden Dawn, the fascists, and, well, just, yeah. The degree to which reformists and revolutionaries can an analyze the same events and draw diametrically opposed conclusions is truly astonishing. The difference can be summed up as follows. Revolutionaries see a threshold that must be crossed along with the revolutionary masses. With, you know, con class-conscious people who want to make change and are ready to go the distance, ready to actually do it. Whereas reformists are conditioned to only see a ledge from which they must back away, right back to the tender mercies of the capitalists. The past century is full of mass upsurges that awaken the historic instincts of, well, working people. In many instances, for all practical purposes, power was in their hands. What was lacking was a conscious leadership. This is where ML thinking, Marxist-Leninist thinking comes in, that you need a vanguard, that you need a, well, a conscious leadership with a program that could channel the immense creative energy of the workers, recognizing that, well, people have power, and they need, it to vent. they need to defend it and protect and proceed to restructure the economy and the state. So revolutionary Marxists are convinced that the impasse of capitalism cannot help but push workers onto this path. As we saw in Catalonia last fall, Iran this winter, and as will be the case in the U.S. in due time. The question is whether we can organize a force of Marxists in advance who can systemically put forward such a socialist program in every major city key industry and campus and neighborhood when events bring the workers face-to-face -face with such a historic moment. So this is in 2018. I think the murder of George Floyd and the 2020 uprising 
was such a movement. But like the rest of U.S. history post-1944, there's no conscious, class-conscious left party ready to, ready to step in and organize people uh, or to you know, present the program. Now, case can be made, a mob will not take that. But again, it's like this party, what, by organized group, he means an organization that's trusted by everyone, that has done the work, that has won victories on the ground, that is a force, that is like, oh yeah, they're calling to seize the means. Let's do that. Let's not settle for police reform, even if the demand is abolishing it. Because when it came down to it in Minneapolis, the government didn't do it because the government was still a capitalist government. And the masses hadn't organized into any counterpower. There was nothing they could really do. So the last word on this is, given the millions of you turning to socialism today, or at least interested in it, we have every reason to be optimistic about our chances to do this. So it's that kind of thinking that's kind of bouncing around my head when, when it comes to the politics I have. Now it's just doing the work of building such a quote-unquote Marxist organization. BLM is not that. It has some Marxists in it, but for an organization to be Marxist, it needs to kind of be what this, this guy's describing and have the kind of goals that's describing. That when it forms a coalition with other parties, other organizations, and actually kind of takes government control, at least of a state or a city, that when they start trying to do their reforms and millionaires and billionaires push back and they, they're, they're instantly, you know, as they do, run challengers right away and, and do everything possible to sabotage using their mass uh, resources, that the response is not to, well, I guess we'll just have to have wait until the election in a few years to see if we can hold on to power. Like, no, you, you, go, you go ham. And you risk having the National Guard being, you know, called in. <laughs> but the, the, but that's that's where it's like the bigger conversation is like, okay, what next? And and this is where it's just like you hold out until you, you show just how powerful what you're doing is. And then every city and then the National Guard's not going to be enough. And the Army's not going to be enough because the Army will see. The Army is made up of exploited people too. Half of the Army are people that join because they want to go to college because college isn't free. They're not stupid. And they're not all reactionaries, as much as they've been, you know, trained by the military and whatever. But, you know, they're, they're, not, they're not robots. The military isn't, you know, they're not automatons, so you know, they could be drones and drone pilots. But, again, it's, okay, that, that's far, 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 far away. Um, so let's not go down that. But I'm saying it's not hopeless, right? Because it, was, it seemed hopeless before, like, oh, the, the czar has a vast army. But when the war affected enough people, and it was truly a lost cause, meaning World War I, the army stops fighting against its citizens and fights for them. By that I mean it stops fighting for a capitalist government that at the very least pays for their college, maybe when it stops doing that.
So as another and so, or not and so, but uh, on the other hand, here is a eco-anarchist revolutionary strategy. So it's still revolutionary strategy here, So here, but here's a different version of this. Uh, completely different, really, um, from different tendency. It's because that, that was from a Marxist-Leninist, the kind of quote-unquote tanky, uh, top-down socialism, because it is a conscious party leading the masses, but of course it's the masses that are still setting what the agenda is. But there's people that need to 
form the choices that people are going to pick from. And when it comes to mass politics, there just aren't a lot of good choices or choices that are fully formed ready to go. As much as the Greens seem like such an option to me, they, they seem way more fully formed than any other organization that I came across. They had a, a strategy that I agreed with. So, which is to build such a party that is of and by and for socialists. But there's still a lot of reactionaries that you know either need to file away or be integrated, however that happens. London Green Left Blog is the title of this. The views published here are of an eco-socialist nature from a broad red, green, and black political spectrum. Like me. So this is the title, An Eco-Anarchist Revolutionary Strategy. And this is a UK guy. So it's from that perspective, but whatever. Anglophone all the way. Written by a Ted Trainer and Hans Barr, the first published at Bassett. Is with respect to means or transition strategy that eco-socialism and my version of eco-anarchism differ most? This is because the kind of society that I argue must replace capitalism differs markedly from that which socialists commonly envision. Our previous piece sketched the argument that, in view of the grossly unsustainable state of industrial consumer society, the revolutionary goal must be a basic social form focused on a small scale, heavily self-sufficient and self-governing zero-growth communities. They have to be driven by need, not profit, and have to abandon a culture focused on individualism, competition, and acquiring. The simpler way, and then converting, that's capitalized, the simpler way, and then converting or forcing uncomprehending masses to it, this is hardly worth discussion. Meaning it's non-starter, not going to do it. The second path would be via the election to government of a party, which had a simpler way platform. But that could not happen unless the cultural revolution for a simpler way had previously been achieved. Explanation point. If when it had, changing structures would be a relatively easy consequence of the real revolution, meaning a cultural one. And this is also kind of like, well, the second path is like culture first. You know, you do the culture mind shift. Like we have to focus on our minds and, and culture representation of this simpler way. And then we'll be able to do the, it'll be easy. But I'm not seeing that happening. You have all these social not social movements, but um, cultural movements online, what does it really amount to? It's all, it gets bought out very quickly because the power is in the hands of the media platforms and those that can advertise the most on them. So there's your focal task right now. That is establishing the required worldview, not trying to take state power. So he's starting from that position of culture first. Culture informs politics not politics informs culture, uh, at least when you get started. So Peter Kapopkin, Tolstoy, and Mahatma Gandhi realized that culture trumps economics and politics. They saw the ultimate revolutionary goal as largely autonomous citizen-run village communities, and these cannot come into existence or function satisfactory unless their members come to have the required vision, values, and dispositions. Though my counterpoint to that statement is that the visions of those three figures, including Gandhi, did not come to pass at all, or not not much. I mean, if Gandhi was the head of the Indian state government and he wasn't assassinated, uh, the certain policies would have went forward to encourage that thing, so maybe it would have actually been put to the test. But so far, a lot of it hasn't been put to the test. Or these you know, citizen-run village community movements, transition towns, 
municipal libertarian municipalism it's all very small and small scale it's like how how does it get how does it take a country you know um but i guess the point is that it doesn't you know because it makes this country or the state obsolete anyway so subtitle standing marks on his head thus in a sense marks must be stood on his head the necessary superstructures this is referring to all the things of entities of society you know when people rant about like you know the media the social networks the the factory owners the this the that the the infrastructure the railroads the highways that's superstructure things that uh, determine our culture but the superstructure must be based on the right cultural substructure of the right ideas and values i don't really like this thinking but uh, let's continue especially Given the current sustainability crisis, the change in ideas and values required for a good society cannot be left until well after the seizure of state power. Yeah, because that takes too long. It's it's a decades, decades process. Marx assumed that they could be, you know, that you, uh, and this this was the experiment of, of the Soviets, of the Soviet Union, that will take state power, change the economy, and change everyone's culture. But not as fast as they tried to change people's mindsets with all the propaganda and whatever and mind control in various forms uh that, that as it's called <laughs> by americans it didn't really change people's culture you know people remained kind of stuck in whatever mindsets they started with um in the, the poverty before and but as time went on the generations passed that you know new soviet citizen kind of did kind of come to pass, but then it, it's kind of turned into the kind of a stagnation of sorts. Everyone's kind of going along to get along, and everyone's doing fine, but and that means nothing can really change or need the change, and you don't really need to imagine a better future, um, or you can't because everything's just so static, which is kind of where we're at right now. More things change, the more they stay the same, at least when it comes to the American status quo. So, thus, let's see, important here is a strong case for believing that capitalism is well down the path to self-destruction. The coming disintegration will make it clear that the system will no longer provide for us, and that people will have to come across to the emerging local collectivism, which is what I see the most of. So this is where, I'd like, this guy kind of has a, I mean, I don't know if he's right, right, you know, like, this is what's best, but this is what's happening. And so he's kind of extrapolating like what strategy comes from what is now so that's there's a head-on contradiction here regarding basic strategy in past revolutions the solution was theoretically simple take power from the ruling class and then turn up the throttles in the factories to provide more abundance but now that cannot be the solution it must be to establish a society with a far smaller growth gdp per capita without growth affluence centralization or globalization above all society driven by radically new ideas namely anarchist ones getting this utterly foreign culture sufficiently established and by the way anarchism also democracy getting this utterly foreign culture sufficiently established is the primary revolutionary task if and when that's done getting rid of what's left of capitalism will probably be easy and nonviolent Socialist transition efforts typically go into calling for state-level policy change, such as nationalizing key industries, but they do not involve shifting to far simpler localized lifestyles and systems. More importantly, they do not recognize that nothing of much significance can be achieved unless we first bring about widespread and profound change in ideas and values. 
So how is this usually done? Well, it has a name. And it has been used in many of the circles I run in and the Greens. It's called prefigurative politics. So then what is to be done? It is to, as anarchists say, prefigure. That is, to focus scarce energies, because we're all limited, on building aspects of required alternatives here and now. Socialists usually miss like a community radio station as an alternative to mass corporate media. Socialists usually misunderstand the point of this, though. It is not based on the assumption that if we go, just go on adding a community garden here or there and a poultry co-op there, uh, in time we will have replaced the existing system. The point of prefiguring is namely educational. It is to develop illustrative examples of aspects of the new society and to use these as basis for undermining capitalist ideology. The best way to undermine it is not to fight it head-on, but to get people to see, A, that it will not provide for us, and B, how good the eco-anarchist or community-oriented alternative could be. Like, you know, this radio station is not going to replace mass media. point is to inspire people to take over Clear Channel and then actually run it like this station. There is now rapidly increasing adoption of this turning away and ignoring capitalism to death perspective. Look to the anti-work movement that's developing. The movement's kind of strong language, a tendency, I guess. But this is evident among the Zapatistas in Mexico. But it's also kind of a case of like the anti-work subreddit online and the kind of lying flat movement in China. These are like these ideas are gaining hold. Like they, they're, they, there is traction there. They're gaining. As, as a pandemic has truly shown that capitalism does not care if we live or die as long as enough of us are able to produce or work or provide services. Whether or not we need these restaurants open or not, a lot of us prefer not to work. And if that means not eating out at this kind of place or that kind of restaurant or have this kind of service, whatever, we'll handle it. We'll do it ourselves. My community can handle it, you know. We do it as a group. We don't need to rely on market mechanisms to do these things. With a capital owner that calls the shots and blah, blah, blah. So anyway, an example that he gives is evident among the Zapatistas in Mexico. The Rojavan Kurds, the transition towns in the UK. And the global, that's where they're strongest, by the way. And the Global Eco-Village Network and a 200 million strong Campesido movement. Possibly the most impressive is the Catalan Integral Cooperative which now involves thousands of building, so it involves thousands of people in building alternative systems, empathetically rejecting having anything to do with the market or the state. If these initiatives spread, they will begin the pressure, the existing state apparatus to focus on enabling the towns and suburbs to thrive and, and will in time, increasingly push the state aside and transfer more functions into the anarchist political sphere in which federations and delegates and conferences work out proposals to take back that would be taken back down to the you know town assemblies the kind of you know popular assemblies assemblies i've mentioned in previous episodes so this would be the process of gradually taking state power so in the end even though it's revolutionary it's still a gradualist kind of point of view so so that's why that's it's a good counterpoint to the more like rupture of like almost economic violence as it is so the final Sort of, yeah, the final strategy of the counterpoint here is, oh man, I just read from them last week. Another piece from Left Voice, but for a completely different kind of topic. And this is a critique of 
basically the kind of things that have been mentioned, autonomous mass movements, um, and so on. So this is, again, like coming from a, you know, vanguard point of view. Because that's, that's always the counterpoint to an anarchist point of view. Or, and, and that's the thing about, like, even democratic socialists is they're still really based in a very libertine uh, mindset of everybody kind of acting as individuals, kind of doing their thing, following their own opinions, and not having a kind of compromise or whatever. It's still, still very individualist, treating people and political actions as like consumer choices. So this is called The House Always Wins, The State and Autonomism. Autonomism as a strategy is growing in popularity during this current moment of uprising, referring to 2020. While an autonomous strategy can provide some important victories, it can never bring about true liberation because it misunderstands the nature of the state, which is what the, let's see, what was the revolutionary optimism one kind of points out too, or, or actually the, the Jacobin article. You can see all the similarities and things that either like, where do these articles contradict each other and say opposite things where do they align in what they're referring to and what they say about the state and how you interact with it. But what they all agree on is you don't join corporations <laughs> or, or be cops or whatever. So we can neither reform the state nor work around it, so we must overthrow it. So this is particularly, uh, most of it is a critique of the CHOP, the Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone or Project, or the CHAZ. So one of the most common sayings about casinos is that the, let's see, who wrote this? Do I have a, oh, uh, Ezra Bryan, written July of 2020. So the common phrase, the house always wins. What is What this means is that even if an individual gambler is up, the casino will still collect the lion's share of the money at the end of the day. If a successful gambler keeps playing, they will inevitably lose more and more because at the end of the day, the house holds the power. This analogy is helpful when thinking about the state. Like a casino, the state holds all the power and has set up itself in a way that ensures that it maintains it. Across the country, the state has unleashed its armies of police on the streets, arresting, beating, and kidnapping protesters without having to face any consequences. What is becoming clear to many is that the issues we're fighting are not localized to this or that police department. They are inherent within the system policing, and by extension, capitalism. This system is organized on an international level and uses full force of each nation state to protect itself. This relation of forces is important because it represents a major challenge to the current tendency that is gaining popularity as a means to resist state violence, called autonomism. First emerged as a tendency in Italy in the 60s, in part as a reaction to the Stalinist reformism of the Italian Communist Party. That's a weird jumble of words, a Stalinist, reformist, Italian Communist Party. Okay. Autonomism rejects the need for a party, which is most leftists in America, and believes even though they say they want a third party, they also reject parties. It's quite difficult to, to recruit. And believes that people must organize autonomously, without leaders, structures, or programs in order to resist capitalism. As a theory, I'm shaking my head. Uh, it has gained popularity in recent decades face, thanks to the work of thinkers like Antonio Negri and Silvia Federici. Now, I'm not going to say this is what was wrong with Occupy or whatever, because I, I was part of it, 
But it's also what I see wrong with most anarchist orgs or groups is that there's no, I mean, there's there's sort of a program of these are the projects we're going to work on. And there is a structure that's, that's, I mean, these are the anarchists I like working with, and it's why I will never abandon anarchism totally as a tendency or ideology in my own life. But I'm not going to commit all the way and say no parties, no leaders, no structures, no programs. That's where it goes too far. I think it's a, it's a too, it goes too far. Anyway, so it's a theoretical descendant of Marxism, but represents a major revision in, in Marxist theory in a few ways. First, it expands the definition of working class to include, among others, the unemployed and those who do unpaid reproductive labor. Second, it believes that in the current moment, corporations have more power than the state. Lastly, autonomous reject the need for workers and oppressed people to organize together to seize the state, arguing that the Marxist strategy of overthrowing and establishing worker government is an act of fetishizing. These changes are not merely theoretical disagreements, but rather are the foundation of an entirely different strategy. While autonomous recognize that the state is an oppressive force that is beyond reform, autonomous strategy does not respond to this analysis by taking up the fight against the state through any kind of organized revolution. Rather, autonomous believe that we must resist the state by creating alternative decentralized structures to create spaces where neither the state nor capitalism can penetrate, a.k.a. prefigurative politics. Though these spaces, autonomous hope to challenge the states of hegemony, you know, like control of everything, and eventually expand outward. The most famous and successful example of this strategy is the Zapatista movement in Mexico in the 90s. Armed militias seized areas of the country, some of which, but they did seize, they seize, they seized land, though. <laughs> some of which they still hold to this day. In the current moment in the U.S., Autonomous strategy mainly involves things like mutual aid networks, direct action, and small occupied zones, such as Occupy, but now uh, the ones in Seattle and New York. So more on that occupied zones and dual power. For a recent example of an autonomous strategy in practice, we need only look to the City Hall encampment in New York City, now, um, which, <laughs> which spells out CHE, City Hall encampment. Now, as a participant in CHE, says the writer, I helped fight back against police repression to create a police-free zone in Lower Manhattan. We were able to hold this space for over two weeks and use it to offer political education for the protesters and mutual aid for the unhoused. Activists would talk about how Che was what abolition looks like in practice and how the encampment demonstrated what a future world could look like. Now, I like this writer because he's kind of where I'm at where, look, I'll participate in all of these autonomous things, but I do not think it's a be-all, end-all, and it's definitely not like the grand strategy. I don't think it's it's getting us. It's winning us some things. It's it's winning us some cultural change, shifting things over to window a little bit in, 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 in some groups of people. But it's like, this can't be it. And I do not want to spend another 10 years stewing about like uh, political movements with no program, no strategy, no parties, no nothing. That's why I joined the Greens, because throughout the my college years, which were 09 to 2012, I was, besides Occupy at the end of it, I was lost. There was like nothing to join. There was nothing to attach to uh, except the new atheist movement, which is just, well, I, that's for another day to talk more about that, I've, but I've done that in other episodes. 
but it wasn't left-wing in the slightest. As soon as a group of them wanted to be left-wing, and again, so that was a problem. It's like you could get a lot of groups together to agree on something or be a subculture and it looks like a base, but then you try to get that base to do one thing and then it splits apart immediately. No one, and, because like you had a lot of atheists and it's like, oh, we have a lot of atheists here. Maybe we should try doing something with all these people and be a base and, and have a, an, an atheist um, presence in American politics. And there could be no agreement on, on that, what that presence was. What was the strategy of American atheists? Uh, not the organization, but the movement, the new atheists. Like, what's our goals? How do we accomplish them? And, and so on. And you had efforts to organize or, or to put down a policy platform. And that's what created the alt-right. <laughs> The the reaction of the the, the, the alt right was created or formed out of this rejection of having a platform of things you want to accomplish that was left leaning. So anyway, so the assumption from many was that by holding the space, we were building a form of dual power, which was what my last episode was about. That represented a challenge to the state. Feeding and caring for the unhoused is, of course, a worthy cause that fulfills a need the state has failed to address at every turn. But it isn't a challenge to the state. By the same token, a free space from cops can build a sense of community. But it, it also doesn't, in and of itself, create a world without police. Creating occupied zones isn't building dual power in the true meaning of that term. Dual power is, in fact, a concept coined by Lenin in 1917. The term described the relationship between workers and soldiers' councils, the Soviets, that were emerging in the revolution and the provisional government that was nominally in charge. There were, in effect, two governments in Russia, one of workers and one of capitalists. That were, that these were in struggle. This struggle was only resolved when the Soviets took power and established their workers' government with the, well, it was a multi-party government at first, and then the Bolsheviks kind of knocked everybody out. Uh, that's where it's, okay, now it's tyranny. <laughs> that was a bad move. So the power of Soviets was far greater than that of any autonomous zone. They represented broad sections of the working class. They had control over production in some areas and had their own defense forces, militias. Dual power is not simply building power parallel to the state. Lenin did not claim that power would naturally shift from the capitalist government to the Soviets. Rather, he was very explicit about the need for the working class to organize an insurrection to overthrow it. The outcome of chess shows this to be the case. As the space moved more and more into being a mutual aid center, it became increasingly apolitical and hyper-localized. This is the kind of thing that um, I would say that the previous author was talking about, very much a localized form of politics or program. Uh, a program that isn't, as he said, you know, it can't be enforced by anybody um, or led. And and certainly in American society, it feels like there is no such thing as leading. And yet, all around us, there are people claiming to be leaders. We have a, well, what's the proverb from a Native American chief, a certain American um, Native American chief? A white man has too many chiefs. Uh, it was never able to form a pole of attraction for masses of workers, referring to this autonomous zone. Uh, simply, a similar thing occurred in Mexico, where the Zapatistas have run autonomous zones in Chiapas for decades, yet they have not been able to expand beyond their borders. Although I did relay a story about how they actually doubled the amount of cantons 
I don't know if that was, I think it was internally. I don't know if they were expanding the amount of land that they took up. It kind of sounded like they did, but at the same time, I couldn't tell. I just said that they were like organizing 11 new like towns. So the state and the working class. The autonomous conception of the state features an important underestimation of how much power the state is willing to cede. It is possible, as the Zapatistas have shown, to defend their autonomous zone if they are isolated and accessible, because they're in the mountains, and relatively uninteresting to the capital. There's not a lot of money to be made. Uh, but if oil was found there, it would be over. But if these zones really do expand out and begin to represent a threat, the state escalates repression with the full force of the police and the military. As an example, the police in Seattle could not accept the autonomy of one neighborhood for more than a few weeks before putting it down. The unfortunate truth is that the combined forces of the state are stronger and better organized than any decentralized network or autom of autonomous zones can ever be. This doesn't mean that we throw up our hands and accept this state as eternal and that resistance is futile. But if we do want to destroy this capitalist state, then we need to set about the task, this task without any illusions. So we can either reform the state nor work around it. So we must overthrow it. Similar to a thing two years ago, the only way um, forward is through. History has shown the only revolution will remove the capitalist state. Well, only, only such a revolution will remove this state. There is no getting around that. So our goal shouldn't be to elect this or that politician to fix the state, nor to create our own structures in hopes of carving out a free space within capitalism. Rather, we need to organize a fighting force capable of beating this thing and taking power. Once we consider this as, a, as the goal, the centrality of workers is clear. If we must defeat capitalists, then the greatest power that we have is, is in our capacity as workers because we alone have the power to stop production, whether by mass quitting or striking. To put it another way, thousands of people occupying a city block is certainly annoying for some capitalists. In some instances, it can stop the state from performing a certain function for a short time. But all in all, it isn't interrupting capitalism in a significant way. This is like all direct action in my mind. But it's like a, it's a tactic, it's a tool, it's not a strategy. Nothing truly is a strategy on its own. This is a fight on a symbolic level rather than a material one. Contrast this with a general strike and the power of the working class couldn't be clearer. If workers across New York City went on strike to protest against racist police violence, then the capitalists would lose billions and billions of dollars as production would grind to a halt. This is why Marxists talk about the centrality of workers. It is not because workers are fundamentally more advanced or smarter or more revolutionary than, say, the unemployed, but because they have a much stronger strategic position. For example, the recent work stoppage in support of Black Lives Matter from the dock workers on the West Coast cost capitalists billions, and it only lasted a day. If transit workers in New York City went on strike, it would effectively shut the city down dealing a massive blow to the state's ability to operate. This is where, like, uh, the state responds by bringing in the National Guard or to fill in basically people who can't say no. But if a cause is just enough and popular enough, it should get to the point where the National Guard also says, no, we're also on strike. We make everything, and we keep capitalism running. When we use our power as workers is when we start to build what is needed to win. You know, because right now the the mass, the great resignation, it's all very decentralized. It's 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 an idea, it's a meme that's spread. 
but it's also very it's not it's the opposite of organized it's just random individuals acting in their own self-interest and the self-interest is it's not my interest to work hard anymore but it's also fueled by actual changes and shifts in values of not valuing capitalist production and what that brings forth the, the bounty because the bounty has never been ours you only get crumbs and maybe you get some more crumbs which is kind of our our parents got more crumbs so localization parties and self orgs when the coronavirus crisis began we saw an uptick in mutual aid orgs across the country this happened out of necessity as the most vulnerable people were suffering terrible effects it was through mutual aid networks that undocumented immigrants for example were able to keep their heads above water so he he mentions an obstacle it can be easy and understandable to become so focused on trying to treat the symptoms of capitalism that people forget to fight the disease this obstacle represents another key flaw in autonomous strategy it can be completely localized oh, sorry it is completely localized by rejecting the need to see state power autonomous make themselves unable to coordinate any struggles that are larger even when they are able to establish an autonomous zone it results in a few blocks that are somewhat free of capitalist oppression but that's not liberation we don't want to liberate only the citizens of one community we want to liberate everywhere we don't want to feed on the unhoused in one in one park we want everyone to be fed and housed the hyper focus on localization compromises that ideal and by that he means prefigurative politics in a way but it's 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 not saying don't do any prefigurative politics it's just saying that this is your strategy the strategy is to use prefigurative politics to build support for a party or program and this is something that like several many greens like want to shift us like let's stop running electoral races let's do prefigurative poli- programs that represent our platform so when we run on that platform everyone's like oh i know what that is i know what the greens are about and i actually know and the greens are doing this thing in my neighborhood and i've met the person doing it and now they're running for office i want them in charge and i will vote for them and i'll donate money which you know isn't happening now it barely happened to sanders what could sanders do that was prefigurative except like help certain people and put writers on bills and whatever he does so anyway and that's why like it the policies could inspire a certain level of educated coordinators or worker coordinators but it couldn't really inspire working class people overall at least those that still are registered and vote democrat and that was the big mistake that running in the democratic party means you're limiting yourself a lot of workers aren't registered dems anymore they gave up on the dems a long time ago long time ago because the dems gave up on them back in the 80s if it wasn't the 80s it was in the 90s let's see to fight and defeat the state we need bodies of democratic self orgs these bodies would help develop so this is the kind of tool he's talking about here and to me a party is one so the apparatus of state is organized on a national and international level we saw an example of this when donald trump threatened to unleash the us military on protesters if local police prove to be inadequate at putting down resistance then the state will call in state troopers or the national guard and then the military The only way to combat that is with large scale and widespread bodies of self orgs. In order to build these up, we need an org of our own that can unite and coordinate struggle nationally and internationally. To uh to you know, veer us away from being purely defensive, which autonomous zones by their very nature are, and towards being something that could actually take power. 
bodies of self-organization will allow the working class workers to form self-defense groups and coordinate them with workers in order to seize power. The clearest examples of the power of bodies and self-orgs are Soviets of the Soviets of the Russian Revolution. Through them, workers were able to organize themselves to resist both the czarist state and the bourgeois dem democracy that came after it. Capitalist government, liberals. From these Soviets, workers were able to raise up self-defense guards that later turned into the Red Army and beat counter-revolutions. This was true dual power. A militant organization of workers could serve to connect local struggles to a larger strategy and help develop new activists into leaders. The sad truth is that as long as we are living under capitalism, the social issues that mutual aid networks are set up to address will never be resolved. To resolve them, we must move away from these localized sects into a more centralized org of workers that is democratically run and has a strategy for both taking up individual struggles and also connecting them. And like, what's the difference between a Soviet, like a worker Soviet and a state and like say a union is that a, the worker Soviet was like a self-governing factory or a co-op, let's say. Uh, there was no boss, there was no capital involved. I think I would need, I would need to read up on that, but I think the point is that a union, uh, at least in America, is always looking to just um, get a better contract with the owners, not be the owners. And that's kind of what I talked about last time. How we get free? Let's wrap up the show. To return to the metaphor of a casino, when thinking about the state, we must be clear that playing by the rules, by their rules, and hoping that for a different outcome, as reformists like Bernie Sanders suggest will result in misery. But we also can't assume that we are taking down the casino just because we found success at one poker table. The house, house will always win because they've rigged the game. We can neither play by their rules and hope to win, nor try to play by our own rules within their system. Instead, we must take over the casino. And I would say, make it less gambling, or whatever you find fun. So while activists may be able to take over small niches and create strong mutual aid networks, it's important to understand that the task before us is much bigger. These actions are small victories, which surely have their place and can have a large symbolic impact. But we also, but we don't want to symbolically abolish the police or symbolically liberate the oppressed. We want to actually abolish the police and actually liberate the oppressed. The only way to fight the state, to win, is a militant org led by workers fighting in our workplaces and refusing the compromise on demands. The fight for liberation requires both an endless imagination and optimism and a firm grasp on material reality. We cannot compromise on the world that we want to build, but we also can't assume that we have built that world by creating one autonomous zone. We have to be more ambitious than that. We have to fight for a better world. In the words of an Irish poet, poet and socialist James Connolly, our demands, most moderate are, we only want the earth. We want the earth and only taking power for revolution will give it to us. Ezra is a teacher and artist in New York City. So that is about it. I can quickly go through this last piece, which I will put in my show notes so you can read it yourself. It is quite long, but it's, it's a list. It's from Cosmonaut, and it's basically a letter to socialists old and new. And he kind of lists out a bunch of like pieces of advice to growing to new socialists. So let me list out the ones I wrote down to summarize this. Lessons for new socialists. Stick to principles and reject poli uh, the politics of dem democratic politics and reforms, meaning Democratic Party. Two, 
Take part in struggles. Avoid more talking than doing. Number three, always recruit new people. Four, follow the call for revolution. Five, debate less, do more, confront bosses. Six, know that you are appreciated, even though it takes longer to, for it to be shown. Put more in than you are taking out. Number seven is lead by example, which is prefiguring. Eight, don't ignore theory and thought, but you should do it first. Nine is don't overthink. And there's a lot more. because It goes to like 1810. Always remember that class struggle is the engine of history and that you have a role to play in it. Eleven, know that all of our socialist predecessors were sometimes right and sometimes wrong. They possess no crystal ball. We don't either. Twelve, after looking backwards, you must still look ahead. We must deal with the problems of today and not the problems of the past. Historical knowledge is critical, but avoid becoming swallowed up by it. Thirteen is share what you learn with others, other workers, and learn to teach and lead both. Always remember that tens of millions of workers were never able to go to college, so they may not instantly hear exactly what you're trying to say. And of course, in constant workplaces, it's like, well, I'm in a workplace and no one is interested in what I'm saying whatsoever. Fourteen. Devise means and experiments to take the socialist message to the workers uh, or to the people in a vast, unorganized regions and industries and into the armed forces. These workers have never likely encountered any socialist ideas, and they remain largely in the grasp of the boss's ideology. They could be won over, but not without a deliberate and focused effort. And I don't think that's sort of happening online, but it's, they're trying. Fifteen. Learn to despise the bosses and their political frontmen and familiarize yourself with the horrors they visit on working people and draw your motivation knowing that someday, somehow, that will end. 16. Learn to love, or at least tolerate, fellow comrades no matter how wrong they may seem to be or try for at least most of them. 17. Avoid most showdowns regarding internal matters, since almost always the issue is not really of that great importance after three days or three weeks or three months. Splits, factionalism, and internal divisions deliberate our movement 99 times for every one time that it cleanses or reinvigorates. So don't play with this. Condemn those who do. 18. Always remember that the system is the enemy, not the misguided among us who likewise work for its overthrow. 19. Accept your full share of the financial responsibility. Even nickels and dimes, making significant financial contributions, not token donations. Pay dues. Overcome your fears and apprehensions, and so on. So there's for like 30 of these. There's 28. So I, and, then, and then a letter to old socialists, which, you know, and then he gives a number of advice, which is actually numbers, there's just seven of them. My profound thanks for listening, which is a skill as important as talking. So I plan to listen to any constructive feedback ideas for the show, topics, or stories that you'd like to hear discussed. So I have social media, I'm on Facebook, I'm on Twitter, it's The Three Left Show. Please check out WCAALP at grandarts.org. This is where the live stream is. This is the community radio station that I am a part of, and I help manage, producer managers. This episode and the last 10 are broadcast on most podcasting apps. For the full archive of the podcast, along with notes, info, sources, are found at three lefts, www.3lefts.news. Of course, the most important thing to do is put the ideas, thinking, and projects talked about said in this show, put them into practice yourself. Think about them. Think about what you're able to do and so on. And check out that list of advice because obviously I was saying it way too fast and couldn't let it digest. 
So either way, keep waving the flags of the three lefts.